way, we are so glad every one of you is here tonight. Can you believe it's November the 8th? Um, so if you looked at your calendar, you would see that we just have one more time to meet. That's next week. And then we're going to take a pause, we call it. So we will pause after that for the holidays and come back on January 17th. So just mark that down and be sure that you're here next week because you don't want to miss the last time. So are you like me? Um, I dread going to the doctor, so I usually put that off. Now, I, I take people to the doctor a lot. So if you want somebody to go to the doctor with you, I'm your person, but I don't like to be the patient. So I've noticed that we're getting almost to the end of the insurance year, so I've scheduled all the things that I have put off. I've scheduled the gynecologist, the dermatologist, the dentist, and uh, as you can tell, I've already been to the dermatologist. I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, what's that thing on my nose? Well, she found this spot that you couldn't even see, and she says it's precancerous, so she prescribed this cream that I put on it that, y'all, it literally eats the skin off your nose. And so all the time people are like, what's that? And I have to like explain what's going on, which, I don't like to be different. Like, it's uncomfortable when people look at you and go, oh, something's different about you. Also, she wants to do some procedure on my foot that's going to involve me wearing some kind of, like, shoe or boot thing. So I did not schedule it this week because I just didn't want y'all to see that. <laughs> so I don't know how you feel, but I feel uncomfortable when I'm different. Um, being different... It's hard. We're going to talk about that tonight. So tonight I want to talk about two topics from this chapter, sexual immorality and lawsuits. When I first read the chapter, those two things didn't seem related at all. Like, how does that tie together? So finally I realized that in both, God wants us to be different, to respond in ways that are different from the world, because we are different from the world. Paul was reminding the Corinthians that as a believer, God gives you a different way to see things and a different way to do things. And if you go back to your old way of living, it's going to cost you. God wants to spare you from regret and from consequences. His way is good, but it is different. This chapter may have challenged what you think. It goes squarely against culture, squarely against what's popular. Remember, Dallas is a lot like Corinth. If a church bends and caves to culture, and we know that many of them do, it's not going to be a healthy church. So we are not going to water down what God says in his word. We're going to tell you the truth, even if it's not popular. I want to raise your view of the authority of our loving God. And I want you to walk away tonight knowing that following God will make you different from the world, different from your friends, and to ask yourself, am I willing to be different? So let's pray and then jump in. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your word. 
Thank you for the way that your word reveals your character and who you are. Lord, you want to protect us. Lord, you want what's best for us because you love us. May we hear your word through your character. Lord, I pray that you will give me courage to speak tonight about things that aren't very popular. And Lord, that we would receive your love. We would learn from you and you would let your word transform us. And I pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So verses 1 through 11 talk about lawsuits. And we learned that believers handle conflict differently from the world. Believers handle conflict differently from the world. When you join a church, most of us have expectations about the kind of people we're going to meet there, right? And usually that's a good thing. But the truth is we may meet people in a church who are very flawed, who are hard to get along with. We may meet people who are going to offend us and hurt us because the church is made up of sinners like you and me. You can't expect that somebody's not going to wrong you or hurt you. And I think conflict with another believer can be more hurtful just because of the expectations that we had of that person. You may have conflict even in the church. So the question is how we're going to respond to that. Paul has heard that members of the church in Corinth are suing each other. And he's like, what? Why would you do that? So before we look at what these verses are saying, let's look at what they're not saying. First, Paul is not saying the legal system is bad or that believers couldn't give a good decision. Of course they can. He's just saying that our priorities, our goals, our perspective is different. Next, Paul doesn't say never go to court with a non-believer. This is talking about conflicts between one believer and another believer. And third, this is talking about civil matters. It says matters of this life, not criminal matters. So hear me on this. This does not stand for the idea that the church should cover up sin, should cover up sexual abuse or assault, domestic violence, theft that occurs with a church member or a church staff. It's not saying if there's rape or domestic violence, we won't prosecute. So what is this saying? Paul points to several reasons that Christians shouldn't sue each other. First, Christians are able to decide disputes. We've already learned we have God's word, we have his wisdom, we have his spirit. There are provisions in God's word for dealing with conflict. Think Matthew 18 that Judy led us through so well last week. There are other scriptures too, and somebody's pulled all those together in a really helpful little document that's called Watermark's Field Guide to Conflict. So if that would be helpful to you, you can find it on the website. Just search in the little search page, uh, Field Guide Conflict, and it'll come up. Second, we have a different approach to conflict than the world. It says taking your disputes with another believer to court to be decided by non-believers, like we're forgetting something important, something that we've already learned in 1 Corinthians, that non-believers only have human wisdom. They only have the world's wisdom to decide something. It's no disrespect. It's just all they have. So our goals in solving issues are different 
Courts try to do what's fair, and we want to do what's fair also, but there's more to it for us. We want to come up with a decision that honors God. We want to protect the unity of the body. We're going to talk about forgiveness, and we're going to seek reconciliation. We care about actions, but we also care about the heart and the motive. Secular courts usually are declaring a winner and a loser, and we just don't see it that way. Thirdly, verse 6 says when we sue another believer, it's a terrible witness of Christ for the culture. I looked up a little bit about the legal system of their culture. Um, it, it was very active. So there were provisions there for arbitration, sometimes trial by jury. A lot of it was corrupt. Filing a lawsuit in their day may not have been quite as big of a deal as it would be for you and me because their, their legal system was just more accessible. It says the local judge was sitting in the middle of the marketplace. So everything was very public, and they liked to see a good legal battle like we do. So you might, have, you might be walking in the marketplace and look up and go, oh, Apollos has sued Timothy. Wait, aren't they part of that church? And we know the non-believing world is looking for reasons not to believe what we say about Christ. They're looking for hypocrisy. And so when Christians fight other Christians in a public way, that confuses people's view of Christ. Like, oh, you talk about peace and love, but when it involves you, when it's your money on the line, you're no different. So why should I believe you when you say Christ changes people? Verse 7 says, this is a lose-lose situation. It says, isn't it better to be wronged? Did that kind of bother you? Like, that goes very much against what the world would say. Like Karen said a few weeks ago, following Christ may involve suffering. It may involve having to give up something that you think is your right. The way we handle conflict will impact a watching world. Think about who's the greatest example of allowing himself to be wronged and not demanding his rights. It's Jesus. So maybe you looked at this and you thought, well, I can't really... I can't really relate to the idea of a lawsuit. So let's broaden this principle so you can see how it applies to you. When you have a dispute with another believer, even one that won't end in a lawsuit, we can bring in other believers to help us solve it. Who could you bring in to help you solve an issue? particularly the past few months, like you see all this ugliness between believers on social media. You know, it's gotten ugly. How can the principles of this chapter speak to that? So when I teach, I always look at some commentators or some scholars about the passage that, that are way smarter than me. And I read several very respected people on this and, and they all kind of kept that at a principle level. They didn't get real with it. And most all of them said, well, really, it would be unimaginable today for a believer to take a dispute before another believer in a church. And I thought, really? I'm so glad to say that at this church, that would not be weird at all. 
I hope that if you are a part of this church, that you are in community or you know other believers that if you had a problem, you could take it to them and they wouldn't think it was weird. People that you know could judge fairly. People that would look through the lens of Christ. So I want to always encourage you toward community if you're not part of a community group. Like Judy told us last week, that community can help you and protect you. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's be and let's know that kind of person. So moving on to verses 9 through 11, he says, you're acting like who you used to be. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives some examples of that. When you look at that list, know that he is not singling out those things as the only things that would keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. He could have put any sin in there. And he says, and such were some of you. And then we see one of the sweetest, most powerful words in all scripture. What does it say? But. But you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus and through his spirit. Kind of a you are, you were. It says you were washed. You're clean. You were just, you were sanctified. You're in the process of becoming more like Christ. So you have the power of God in you through his spirit in you to live differently. And you were justified. That is a legal term meaning to be declared righteous before God. So it's a righteousness not based on your deeds. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's the great exchange. Christ took on your unrighteousness and paid the penalty for it on the cross. And in exchange, he gives you his righteousness. So if you are a believer in Christ, when God looks at you, instead of seeing your sin, he sees his son. Instead of seeing your sin, he sees his son. Do you view yourself the way God sees you? Following Christ will make you different from the world. We can respond to conflict differently. Are you willing to be different? When you have conflict with another believer, how are you tempted to respond? Who are some believers in your life that you could bring in to evaluate your disputes? God calls us as believers to handle conflict differently. How are you prepared to explain that difference to your non-believing friends and family? Regardless of who you were before, as a believer, you were washed, sanctified, justified. How do you struggle with seeing yourself the way God sees you? How can the women in your group help you to see yourself rightly? So after he reminds them <clears throat> of who they are, he moves on to the topic of sexual immorality in verses 12 through 20. If this is your first time here, welcome to Watermark. We learned that believers view their, our physical bodies differently from the world. Believers view our bodies differently from the world. How would God define sexual immorality? 
It's sexual expression outside the boundaries of marriage. Sexual expression outside the boundaries of marriage. Sleeping with someone you're not married to, having an affair, looking at porn, masturbation, prostitution. As we all know, God's view of sex flies in the face of what the world says. Even what the world says is wise. Live together before you get married? Well, the world would say, you'd be foolish not to. I heard two similar stories this week, both of where um, a guy was going to his girlfriend's dad to ask for her hand in marriage. And the dad said, I just can't give you my blessing until you've lived together. Like, what? Are you willing to be different? If you follow God's ways, people may think you're weird. This is hard, it is. So when you read this passage, is God saying, if you're single, you may never have sex? That's really hard. It may involve your giving something up that the world says you have a right to. It really makes us evaluate what we believe about God and his character, that he's good, that he's for us. So I'm gonna start with the end of this passage because I think if you're solid on that, the rest of it makes more sense. We talk each week about what, how what you believe drives what you do. So on verse 19 it says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Stop and think through that. That is a higher view of your body. So if you believe the truth that your body is a dwelling place of God's spirit, that you're not your own, you belong to God, the God who loved you so much, he created you, he redeemed you with the most priceless of prices, the death of his son, that's what you're worth to him. If you believe that you belong to a God who loves you like that, it would make sense that you would use your body for his glory. We act differently when we're using something that belongs to someone else, right? So if I'm in my car when I see a yellow light, I might step on the gas instead of the brake to try to get through the light. I might go too fast, I might look at my phone. But my sister has a Mercedes it's the big one, the S-Class. Y'all, this is such an amazing car of all, what all it does. So when you turn the corner, the seats come in and they like hug you around the corner. So you think if I'm driving her car, I'm gonna gun it through a yellow light? Am I gonna look at my phone? Uh-uh. When we see our bodies differently as belonging to a loving God, we're gonna use them differently. So two things this passage teaches about sexual immorality. Sexual immorality reflects the wrong perspective and sexual immorality has consequences. Then we'll look at what to do with sexual temptation. Sexual immorality reflects the wrong perspective. You may be here having never heard any of this before. You may hear this and you may go, this sounds kind of old school. Sex outside marriage? Why wouldn't I? Or you may be here and know that it goes against God's design, but you do it anyway. 
If either one of those describes you, we're not here to condemn you. We want God to reframe your perspective. We all have something in this area. We all have wrong sexual desire. We all need this. God challenges all of us. But he's here to help all of us too. So let's reframe our perspective. Sometimes we think of, this, of God as this buzzkill God who's trying to take away all our fun and won't let us do what we want to do. But he's like, no, no, no. I created your body. You're fearfully and wonderfully made just the way I wanted it. I redeemed you with the most precious thing I had, the life of my son. I want to give you what's best for you. So God does have authority over us. God doesn't think sex is bad. Remember, he invented it. But he designed it for a certain context, and that is marriage. God's ways toward us, no matter what stage of life we're in, are always motivated by love. Okay, so let's go back to verses 12 and 13. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So Paul starts by comparing what cultures, their culture said to what God says. The Corinthians lived in a very permissive sexual culture. So they brought their sexual ideas and experiences into the church like we do. Corinth is not that different from Dallas. The Corinthians had the wrong perspective. The prevailing culture of their day said that what you do with your body doesn't affect your spirit. And so what you did with your body was really not that big of a deal. And that led them, like they did with so many things, to just imitate the culture. They were misusing their idea of freedom in Christ as an excuse for sexual sin. They'd say, well, I've been set free from the, from the law of and sin and death. Did you notice in verse 12 the quotes around all things are lawful for me? So Paul must have been quoting some current saying of the day, kind of like you say, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says, not all things should master me. I'd say just because you can doesn't mean you should. Verse 13, in quotes, you say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So they were probably using that idea to justify just doing whatever their body wanted. They'd say, well, if I'm hungry, I should eat. If I want sex, I should fulfill that. Like, what's the difference? It's no big deal, right? It's like saying, it's my body and I can do what I want with it. Sound familiar? Where did you get the idea that it's your body? Not from God. As Christians, we have a different view of our bodies and sex and marriage and relationships. He gave you your body to reflect his character, to serve him, to be his hands and feet in the world. Sexual immorality goes against all that. Verse 15 says, Do you not know your body is a member of Christ? 
Should I involve a member of Christ in sexual immorality? And in Greek, he says, meganoito. It means may it never be. It's the strongest way you could say no. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. A lot of people today go, no, 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 sex is just physical, that's it. It's not true. The way God designed it, sex is a tremendously emotional and spiritual thing as well. The most intimate thing one person can do with another. God designed sex as a bonding union to deeply bond a husband and wife who are in a lifelong committed relationship. So having sex with someone outside marriage mars the picture, the purpose God has for sex. Sexual immorality reflects a wrong perspective. God's view of sex, it's a high view. It's challenging though. It only makes sense in the context of knowing the character of God. Next, sexual immorality has consequences. You probably heard the saying, you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences of your actions. When you choose sexual immorality, just know that it'll have consequences for you and it affects other people. When our teenage daughter told me that she was pregnant, part of the conversation was, it's my body and it's my life. And I was like, oh no, it's not. What you do affects everyone who loves you. And the day I said those words, I had no idea how true that was gonna prove to be. Did any of you have a parent who had an affair, maybe that led to a divorce, and they told you, oh, this is not gonna really affect you? That's a lie. We all know the harm that comes from sex outside God's way. Becoming one flesh binds you together. It binds you together in a way like no other. And if you're bound to someone outside of marriage or bound with a lot of someones, the residuals are huge. It complicates things. It makes you stay with someone you shouldn't be with longer than you should. When you break up with someone that you've had sex with, it's more painful. You bring all of those things, if you get married, into your marriage. Now, culture tells us, don't let anyone tell you what to do with your body. You have sex with whoever you want. Be free. And many of you know that does not bring freedom. It offers bondage, thoughts, comparisons, feelings that you can't turn off, things you can't forget. Those are things that God never intended you to carry. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Sin separates, it isolates, it offers regret. Sin takes you farther than you wanted to stray, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, costs you more than you wanted to pay. Let's this passage warn you. Sexual immorality offers a wrong perspective of the culture that God designed and, and redeemed your body for, and it has consequences. Following God's way will make you different from the world, from your friends. Are you willing to be different? 
God has something better for you. His ways protect you. So what do we do with the sexual temptation that we are around every day? Verse 18, maybe my favorite verse, it just says flee. Doesn't say be strong, resist. You're not that strong. The best illustration of this in the Bible is Joseph in Genesis 39. So in Egypt, he worked for Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's assistants. So Potiphar's wife, apparently he was around the house a lot, um, saw that he was really good looking and she wanted him, it says. Uh, she, she, over and over, she would say to him like, come lie with me. And he would go, no thanks. Well, she kept on. So one day it says she sent all the servants away so they were alone in the house. So I imagine like she put on something from Cleopatra's secret and she grabs him and pulls him close. And David did not say, hey, I'm strong, I can handle this. What did he do? He ran. He pulled his arms out of his coat and left his coat in her hands. Here's what he said. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It was reverence for God, not fear of getting caught, that motivated Joseph. May that be true of us. Sexual temptation is powerful and we cannot negotiate with it. Don't think you're the exception. Todd gives an illustration of someone who thinks they can manage temptation as being like taking a lion cub into your house as a pet. It's so cute and furry, and so you play with it, and you feed it, and you nurture it, and then one day it grows up to be a ferocious lion. You can't control it anymore. You can't manage it. We have to flee because it's running after us. But when you flee, don't just run from, be running toward something. We're always either running away from God or running toward him. Paul said this to Timothy. Remember, we met him a few weeks ago. This is 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Don't you love that? He says, hey, flee sexual immorality, but be running toward faithfulness and run with other people who are running the same direction. Who do you know that's running the same direction? So one way to flee temptation is just to be intentional about not getting yourself in that situation in the first place. To plan ahead not to be in a situation of temptation. Maybe you need to not be alone in an apartment at night with someone. Don't turn the lights off. If you're asking how far can we go, that's the wrong question. Here's some questions to ask yourself. Will God be glorified if I date this person? Would reading this, would looking at this draw me away from God? That's super convicting for me. Am I wearing this dress to get men's attention in a way that dishonors God? How will posting this on social media reflect Christ? Does the way I dance tempt someone toward sexual sin? So if you're sitting here thinking, this doesn't apply to me, remember that sexual sin starts in your mind. It's something that's easy to replay over and over. 
Matthew 5, 27 from our curriculum says, you have heard it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Does that bust all of us? Admit it. Then it goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. We're like, whoa. Uh, I think this is trying to make a point to take drastic action. Are there certain places you shouldn't go? Certain place, people you just shouldn't be alone with? Do you need to get rid of your internet plan on your cell phone? Drastic action. Do you need to find a new playground or new playmates that'll spur you on toward Christ? I know some of you in this room feel totally defeated when you read this passage. You're like, I've blown it so badly. Like, what now? I know there's some of you in this room that have been unfaithful to your husbands. Some of you that are living in a promiscuous lifestyle right now. And you go, well, what's the point? Kind of like if you eat five cookies, you go, I've already blown it, so I might as well eat some ice cream. You may have painful memories of recent moral failure. You may have looked at porn this week. Maybe today. Is there any hope for you? I'd say two things. Sin has consequences. I can't say anything that would change that. But know that God is with you even in the consequences. God can bring good in the worst, most painful, most regretful things of your life. Look for that. And if you've engaged in sexual sin, Jesus died for you. He died for that. His grace is way bigger than anything you've done. If you know Christ, you are forgiven completely. You were washed, sanctified, justified. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have a hard time believing that's true of you, read that verse out loud and put your name in it. Verse 37 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including your sexual sin, will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in our Lord Jesus Christ. Live free. Now, you have, may have memories of things in your past that keep you stuck. You may have memories that you're not inviting in. They're just there. What do you do with that? That's really hard. There's no easy answer. I'd say keep giving them back to God. Let them remind you, when you look at your past, let them remind you not of guilt, but of his grace. To go, that's why I need his grace. And thank God I have it. God would say, my beloved daughter, go and sin no more. That's not easy. It's not some nice little formula. But you can. You don't have to sin. 
You are not a slave to it. I read something in the Gospel Coalition that says, that doesn't mean sin doesn't influence us, but it has no authority over us. If you're in that situation, read Romans 6. That is your go-to chapter. Wish I had time to read it right now. It will tell you that you have been set free from that. Part of being free is being free not to sin. God gave you his spirit that enables you. Romans 12, 1 says, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. See your body that way. Run with people who are running toward Christ. There may be something that you need to bring into the light. Your group is a safe place to do that. You'll be met with love, listened to, encouraged, held accountable. You won't be judged. Be willing to be different, starting tonight. How does this passage elevate your view of God's purpose for your body? What steps can you take this week to stay out of sexual temptation? How are you tempted to follow culture's view of sex? Is God calling you to take drastic action against sexual sin you're currently involved in? God will honor that. Tell a trusted friend who can hold you accountable. And how can you use your body to glorify God? Most people only know the world's way, the world's perspective. Believers handle conflict differently. Believers see our bodies differently. Following God will make you different from the world. It's hard. The spot on my nose, I could have said, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I just don't want to seem weird. But I had to remember that that doctor knows way more than I do and that she is for me. She knows things that could happen if I didn't follow that way. She sees a bigger picture. God's way will make you different, but it's worth it. Are you willing to be different? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you tell us the truth. You don't water it down. You don't hide it. Lord, may we be transformed by knowing that you love us. Your ways are good. You want to protect us. You have all of our best in mind. Lord, thank you that you loved us in that way. So, Lord, let us see that differently and see our bodies differently because of it. Lord, I pray for some great, safe, vulnerable conversations in our groups tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. And we pray all that in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.